0: We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We welcome all of you here, both those who are here with us in our gymnasium, uh, those joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 a.m., and those joining us really worldwide, I guess, uh, at kfuo.org. It's a pleasure to have you all with us today as we study God's Word. Uh, we're going to be looking uh, today at the lessons for the following week, and uh, both Old Test- uh, the Old Testament Epistle and Gospel lessons for next Sunday. Now, I need to make a little uh, caveat here for our people here at St. Paul's. Uh, what we are going to be doing the next two Sundays is actually flipping the lessons. So next week, here at St. Paul's, you will hear the lessons that the rest of the world will hear on August 11, and on August 11. You will hear the lessons that we are studying today that the rest of the world will have on August 4. I won't go through all the reasons for that, but there, there is, trust me, there is a very good reason for that. So, uh, in terms of what our audience away from here is hearing, and I apologize, we've got some popping in the microphones, I'm not sure why that is, but... Anyway, we'll uh, endeavor to fix that, but at any rate, uh, the lessons that we are going to look at today are the lessons for next Sunday is Sundays in most every other church except for St. Paul's, I'll put it that way, all right? Let's begin with a word of prayer, if we might. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are our rock and our fortress, an ever-present help in time of trouble. We come before you today with thanksgiving that your son has come, has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil, and that through him we have eternal life. We thank you also for your life-giving word and for this opportunity to study it together. We pray your blessing upon us that your Holy Spirit, as we study your word, will be at work and will lead us into increased knowledge, understanding, and especially of your will for us as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. We have a great connection and a very obvious connection in these lessons, one of the most clear connections that we'll see. Normally as uh, we've talked about in this class before, normally the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson are connected in terms of some sort of theme that is present in both, some main point that is present in both and that really comes through today very, very clearly. It is uh, our relationship with God versus our relationship with the things of this world, okay? And we'll see that, as I say, in both the Old Testament and Gospel lessons. The Old Testament lesson is really a bit choppy in terms of a few verses here, a few verses there, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, that's not a book that we get into very often, Uh, in terms of the readings, in fact very rarely in terms of the readings and probably less yet even in the study of the readings. Uh, So maybe just a little bit of context here before we dive into the reading. The author of Ecclesiastes, of course, is Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David. And uh, you you recall that Solomon uh, was the one whom God used actually to construct the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, David wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem, and God said, nope, it's not going to be you. Uh, David gathered uh, a tremendous offering for that chapel, but it wasn't David who actually built uh, the, uh, the uh, temple. And also maybe to note about uh, Solomon, remember that he is the son of David and Bathsheba, yes. Uh, Actually, the second child born to David and Bathsheba, you'll remember the first one uh, died. Uh, That was the one that uh, David had in that, uh, uh, probably the low point of his life, I think we could say, his uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, which led him to plot even further and kill, uh, had killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah, a soldier. Um, But notice how God's plan continues and Solomon is born. Uh, to David and Bathsheba. Uh, Solomon, uh, I guess it's fair to say under both David and Solomon that uh, this was uh, what's called the golden era uh, for God's people in terms of wealth and power and prestige. Uh, It was really at its zenith. And one thing about Solomon that stands out, well he had, I was going to say one quality, he had many qualities, some of them uh, more admirable than others, But remember, what's the one thing that stands out about Solomon? He was known for his wisdom. And just to review, in 1 Kings 3, remember, God comes to Solomon. I'm going to pick up in verse 7, for those of you that have a Bible here with us. Uh, 1 Kings 3, starting at verse 7. uh, And Solomon, uh, basically, God comes to uh, Solomon and said, Ask what I shall give you. Now what a question, huh? Ask what I shall give you. What would our response be if God came to you and said, whatever, essentially, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Just ask, right? And so then Solomon goes on and says, and Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day, namely Solomon. Verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your people, this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I, I now do according to your word." Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind that none like you has been before and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And it it goes on from there. So that's that famous scene where Solomon asks God for an understanding mind, or wisdom, we might say, to know what is good and what is evil. Um, Kind of interesting that that's 1 Kings 3. By 1 Kings 11, God is already upset with Solomon and is raising up adversaries against Solomon. You'll remember that Solomon also is known for his many wives and concubines and I've had people over the years ask me about this, and quite frankly, I don't have a good answer for it. You know, why, when, when God clearly establishes marriage in the Garden of Eden as one man and one woman, and says, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one." Notice it doesn't say wives there; it says wife. I, the best explanation is that simply God allowed this to occur. And and I can't say any more than that. It it is not something we would point to, obviously, as uh, something that uh, we are happy with, or or that probably God was happy with. Um, With the the wives and the concubines and the foreign wives that Solomon had came what? Foreign gods, the gods of these wives. And here again, God's people go on a path, a trajectory that God is not happy with. Now, not to end on a bad note. There there is some evidence that near the end of his life Solomon did repent and come back, or God brought him back, we might say. And so this is sort of um, some context, I guess you would say, for our text for today. This wise Solomon is going to look at the world around him. Now, Ecclesiastes is uh actually the name of that book. Is from the Greek word for a gathering or an assembly. Uh, it's the one used for church, ecclesia. You may have heard of things like ecclesiastical arts, church art, okay? And so Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word for a gathering or an assembly. And there's even some speculation that Solomon gave this as an address, as, as an actual oration at a gathering of of, um, of leaders and, and uh, wealthy uh, you might say uh, upper crust of people in his day and he is giving here a a conclusion about wisdom and the pursuits of this world versus the pursuits of God and, and earthly things versus heavenly things uh, we think this came near the end of his life our text uh, he had been around and seen a lot and done a lot by this time. And uh, there's, a, there's a note of, um, I, guess, I don't want to say cynicism, but there's a, especially about the things of the world. There's a note of cynicism, which we'll pick up here. And there's also a heavy dose of reality that, that we're going to see here in his words, okay? So kind of keep all of that in mind now, this a very powerful leader who has been there and and done many many things is in retrospect now looking back and comparing the things of this world to the things of we might say the kingdom of God and uh, comes away with with quite a comparison okay Um, in essence is gonna the conclusion is gonna be that the things of this life and really life in this world is fleeting and the things of God are what give meaning to life and are the things that actually endure, okay? So that's probably more than enough setup. Let's take a look now. For those of you that are here in the gym, there are sheets on the side over here that have these lessons printed out. Or otherwise, you can look in your Bible. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to look just at verse 2 to begin with of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that is kind of the theme of the book. Uh, it's, it's not an uplifting theme, is it? Uh, and again, he's, th- he's speaking of the things of this world. Now, when we say the word vanity, what, what might be some synonyms for the word vanity? You Think of what a, a, any synonyms for the word vanity might be. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Emptiness. Emptiness, that is a great one. Empty. Empty. Everything is just empty, or futile, or useless, you know. Uh, in other words, there's no point to it. And again, we've got we to remember, he's talking about the things of this world now, not, not the kingdom of God. So you kind of think, he, that's where he ends up. You know, this, this incredibly wealthy guy who is given all this power ends up with the conclusion that vanity of vanities, or emptiness of emptiness, Everything is empty, okay? Um, Verse 12 now, we go on to 12 through 14 of chapter 1. And notice he calls himself here a preacher. And uh, this is Solomon talking. And and when we say God talking through Solomon, obviously, just like as he spoke through the prophets, he's speaking here through Solomon. So again, we give the impression that this is kind of an oration that is given, that he is actually speaking this, this wisdom at this point. okay. So verse uh, 12, here it's repeated again, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So here he is, you know, I've been the king of Israel and I set out, you might say he undertakes an investigation here, we might say, right? He's got a search going on here. to to search out all that is done under heaven. In other words, everything that's done on this earth, I'm going to take a look at it here. I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to uh, see what it comes to in the end. And notice his his conclusion. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. (laughs) And we would say here it's not God that gets the blame here for for this. It's man being unhappy. in in these pursuits. As we're going to see near the end, if you see these pursuits in a much different light, in other words, if you see yourself here as not just here to serve yourself and gain as much as you can and stockpile as much as you can, but rather see yourself here as God's agent or God's instrument in this world, it changes your entire outlook. But with that former understanding of things, He concludes that it's an unhappy business that God has, uh, that people are employed here, that God has given here in this world. And he's going to tell you why. And notice notice how starkly realistic this is. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Isn't that a great expression? Did you ever try and catch the wind? contain the wind, it's, it's useless, can't do it, right? And that's what he's saying about every pursuit that there is here, again, with that, with that perspective, that you're on your own and you're doing it for yourself, it's all just emptiness. You, you go to get it and it's, it's like it's not there, okay? It's, it's futile, it's empty. Now, verses 18 through 23 it talks about the meaninglessness of work. Or the vanity of work and accumulating things uh, probably should have this uh, on labor day weekend or something we could talk about this but look at how look at how cynical it is again remember that understanding verse 18 i hated all my toil in which i toil under the sun seeing that i must leave it to the man who will come after me let's stop right there what's his point here i'm working hard I'm out there pursuing all this, and in the end, notice he uses the word must. What must happen? You've got to leave it behind, right? Can't take it with you. It with you. Exactly right. Uh, what's that old joke? You never saw a funeral hearse with a, with a U-Haul trailer on the back of it, right? You've got to leave it behind. Uh, you know, interesting, I was thinking, um, the Egyptians, when they would bury the uh, pharaohs or the, the rulers, I don't know if you've seen any of these pictures, uh, but they would, they would actually bury in, in tomb the pharaoh and they would put all kinds of gold and uh, beautiful uh, artwork and so on. It was, it was a, almost an embarrassing lavishness of riches that they would put right in the tomb. But again can't take it with you there it is right and so and and that and notice that that's a must you know you you, you've got no choice here it doesn't go with you so see he starts off by saying this is what's futile you labor and work for all of this and in the end you leave it behind it's somebody else's okay going on now we're gonna it's even worse verse 19 and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. So you leave all this stuff you've toiled for behind, and what's what's the potential here? The person who ends up with it might be foolish, and of course the inference is what might he do with all the stuff you've worked all your life to accumulate? Squander it, you know, waste it. Uh, it's like the prodigal son, right, who goes off and squanders his inheritance, right? And uh, so who knows, right? And um, you know, I don't know about you. I was thinking, I couldn't help but think of this. That, uh, <clears throat> be careful what I say here. Uh, that the things—I'll just put it this way—the things that we, I'll just put in my generation, value, and we are—you know—these are our accumulations. The next generation, that stuff might be in the dumpster, right? When they come to clean the house out, right? I mean, we've all been there, right? The stuff that one generation thinks, oh, this is so valuable. This is a collector's item. There are collections of these things. They're kids? We don't want that stuff. They throw it away. So, again, see the the futility of all of this is what he's pointing out, okay? Then uh, midway in verse uh, 19. Yet he, not me, but that guy that we're going to give all this to, He will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom, or my smarts, under the sun. This also is vanity, or this, again, also is is, uh, emptiness, okay? He's going to be the master over everything that I toiled for. Um, Verse uh, 21. I'm I'm sorry, uh, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So, you know, in thinking about this, he starts to despair. You know, so what's the use? What's the point? Uh, Now, verse 21 Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must, again, no choice, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone. Who did not toil for it? So he didn't lift a finger to earn any of this stuff. He's going to get the enjoyment out of all this, right? Not me. He will. So again, uh, what's the point? Uh, This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22 What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I'm sure glad the reading didn't stop here. (laughs) But boy, you know, you see this dose of reality here? This is starkly uh, uh, realistic. That if you're just pursuing these earthly things, the, the part that even... You know, the, the, near the end of verse 23, where in the night, when you're supposed to be at sleep and at peace, and, and having, you might say, some respite from all the work and vexation of the day, even at night, as it says there, his heart does not rest, right? And how many people aren't there? Uh, who knows? I guess the Lord only knows. How many people aren't there in this world today, tonight, that are going to lie awake, worried, about something at their workplace, or their company, if they own a company, uh, you know, something in their employment. They're not going to be even able to sleep tonight, because tomorrow is Monday, and they have to face something. And again, he's saying, you know, even, even that rest that God has built into his creation for us, for his people, they're not even, the, the man is not even able to rest at night, but stays awake on his bed, you know, worrying about these things and being anxious about these things, okay? So, that's where that section ends up. Now, at, uh, in uh, chapter, uh, in verse 24 and following, I'm sorry, we get the other side of the coin now. And just think, if people had this understanding of their vocation and what they do monday through friday or even more if you work more than monday through friday what a different perspective that would put on what we do every day verse twenty four there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also i saw is from the hand of god for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment." And, you know, he's saying here, uh, if you contrast what we've seen before, the vexation, the worry, the uh, the emptiness that you feel with your work, now in the, through the perspective now of being a child of God and enjoying your work. Nothing is better, he says, there's nothing better for a person then he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil or in his work and you know when you stop and think about it when we are children of God when God calls us to be his children it does put an entirely different perspective on life doesn't it on our purpose here uh, for the rest of our lives as we live out our days here on this earth We know that all is right between us and God. We fully recognize and understand that these things that God gives to us, first of all, we understand they come from God. They're not the result of our own sweat and and toil. They are given us by God. But we realize that all these things are not where true happiness and joy and satisfaction is to be found. It is found in God. And with that perspective, we can enjoy life we can enjoy food. We can enjoy even our work, because they are all gifts from God. Now, again, think about the difference. Let's just take—I don't know if any, I don't know that anybody in here is a farmer. So let's take this for for a vocation, okay? A farmer could look at his vocation as there simply to plant as many crops as as he can get as many bushels in the in the harvester as he can and make as much money as he possibly can add as many acres to his farm as he possibly can and accumulate as much as he possibly can in this life that's kind of the first way we were looking at uh, Ecclesiastes, that's one way or the farmer who is a child of God could look at what he does day in and day out and see himself as the person, whom one of the people anyway, whom God is using to provide daily bread for his people, right? We pray in the petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Well, how does God do that? He doesn't just, you know, fall down from the sky on our, on our plate when we're at the table. He uses... Farmers and grocers and uh, truckers and, and processors and bakers, all these people. And see, if we could see ourselves not in our vocation just to serve ourself, but there to serve our God and especially our neighbor, wouldn't that make a difference, I, I think, I hope, in the way people would get out of bed on Monday morning and think, instead of, Ugh, you know, here we go again, out into the rat race, and here we go. Instead, I'm serving God today at wherever we're found, you know? And that goes for everybody. Uh, well, everybody in a godly vocation. I have to qualify that, I would say. But, you know, everybody from a teacher to a nurse to a doctor, an attorney, whatever vocation you are in, that you are there serving God and your neighbor. And that's the slant that that uh, Solomon brings to this that it is through God that we find actual contentment and enjoyment even in our work okay even in our toil Uh, verse 26 for to the one who pleases him that is God and how do we please God only if we are pronounced righteous in his sight God is pleased with us again uh, Abraham uh, uh, believe God and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness okay so to him who pleases God God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy right we just had a a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod convention that focused on the joy of of the Christian life and maybe we as Lutherans need to emphasize that aspect a little bit more than we do Uh, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to be given to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Again, we end up with that futility of trying to catch the wind, all right? So there's the, you might say, there's the unfairness of life, if you look at it from the perspective of just yourself and what you're going to gain out of this world. It's, it's, he cites it's just kind of unfair that you, you labor and toil for all this and it ends up, Somebody else gets it, somebody else is master over it, somebody else enjoys it. But why not enjoy it while you're here, right? As a child of God, enjoy your work while you're here and your toil while you're here. That's, again, the perspective that uh, Ecclesiastes and Solomon brings to our work and to our vocation. So actually, I was joking before, saying we we probably better not have this uh, on Labor Day weekend, but it would be a very appropriate uh, thing to talk about on Labor Day weekend, especially that, that latter portion. Okay. All right, let me stop for a second here now, or uh, more than a second, uh, and see any, any questions or comments that you might have on this section itself uh, from Ecclesiastes. This will be the Old Testament lesson, again, for most of the world uh, next Sunday and for us in two, two Sundays from here. All right, seeing none. All right, I want to jump to uh, the Gospel lesson because here we see a clear connection. And um, so this is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Now, you'll recall several weeks ago when I was here, we talked about, we had one of our verses in the, in the gospel lesson was Luke 9, verse 51. And that's the verse where Luke writes that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It's a, it's a very stark term. It means like you stick your chin out and you're determined to go to jerusalem and from that point on luke 951 on we have jesus going to jerusalem where he we as we know what's going to happen he's going to voluntarily give his life up in sacrifice but along the way we've got what's called this travel narrative and a lot of this material is only in luke so we're delighted to be able to have it and to read it and uh, we, get a, we get a tremendous chapter of parables. I mean, it's just a treasure trove of material from Jesus. But it's interesting that three times on his way to Jerusalem, what does Jesus talk about? Possessions. And our, the, the proper understanding of possessions for a person in the kingdom of God. And it's kind of surprising. I didn't realize that before, but I, I read it in preparing for this. That Three times he talks about that. So it's kind of important. And let's take a look. I'm going to read the whole thing through first, and then we'll go back and kind of pick out parts. Starting in verse 13 of Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You see the real connection here before we even dive into this? I mean, there's a great connection between Ecclesiastes and this. Now, let's go back and take this apart a little bit. Someone in the crowd. So it's not important who it is, but someone in the crowd. Now, crowd is kind of uh, an understatement. Uh, We read in, uh, in Luke 12, verse 1, there were great crowds. And we think there were possibly even thousands of people at this point following Jesus. And remember, he's heading on to Jerusalem at this point. So someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we might say, well, that's kind of odd. Why in the world is this guy asking Jesus to settle an inheritance issue in his family? Well, just know this. The rabbis at that time were routinely asked uh, to give an interpretation from the Old Testament, from the Torah, in terms of dividing an inheritance or some kind of financial thing, if the Old Testament spoke on that. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament where it talks about uh, dividing inheritances and there are some rules and regulations about that. Uh, For example, uh, you may know this one, that the, uh, the elder brother got what share? Double portion of the inheritance and uh, so there were all there are all these kinds of rules and regulations so this guy out of the crowd just says you know tell my brother to divide the inheritance in other words uh, we want to do this according to hoyle here uh, you know tell him to do it and so jesus responds he's not going to get into this right he's just not going to get into this squabble he has something much larger to teach here than just that okay there he, this guy is all focused on his inheritance Jesus is going to open his vision a little further than just this little inheritance that... or maybe it was a little, but anyway, this inheritance that he's going to get, okay? So um, verse 15, and he said to them, so Jesus says to these crowds at that time, he takes this as an opportunity to teach them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not... Con- in the abundance of his possessions." This is one statement here, that's a general statement that Jesus makes. He's going to make another general statement at the end of this section. uh, Sort of a, you might say, a main teaching about possessions. And in between, there's going to be this parable. But here's one statement and another statement at the very end of this section. Let's take a look at that. Take care, or, or you might say, be on guard. And uh, against all covetousness. Now, what is covetousness? And it can also be translated as greed. Okay? It, I always tell a confirmation class, the coveting something is the passionate desire to have something. Okay? Now, is it wrong for me to have a passionate desire uh, to, ha- to, to win a gold medal in the Olympics? Is that wrong? No, of course not. I can have a passionate desire to to win that. Is it, is it wrong for me to have a passionate desire uh, to have a house like my neighbor's house? Like my neighbor's house? No. Uh, now, is it wrong for me to have a passionate desire to have my neighbor's house? Yes. Okay. See, uh, coveting is... Wanting to have what God has given to someone else. And a house might be one example, but we all uh, know what... Well, look, I I mentioned a reference before, David and Bathsheba, right? Uh, Look at what it led to. And so it is, you're saying to God uh, in this that, I think you were wrong when you gave it to them, it should be mine. And you're making yourself supreme over what God has already done, right? You want to correct God's mistake. It really should be yours, and you can tell yourself that. And so there's coveting, is wanting to have what God has given to someone else, is the way I like to put it. There is also greed, which is maybe not even wanting to have what already belongs to your neighbor, but again, this attitude of wanting to accumulate everything I possibly can, and it's the passionate desire for things, and to serve whom? Yeah. And so he says in this first general statement here, be on guard against all of that. Why? One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I don't know about you, but there are, uh, I am afraid, a lot of people who gauge their life by how much they have in terms of possessions just think of this uh, think of this phrase there's a phrase we have I think he's worth about five million dollars I think he's worth about two million dollars Jesus says no a man's life does not consist in the accumulation of his possessions It's again, it's looking at one's life through God's eyes, through the kingdom of God versus our own human ways of thinking. Okay, and that's the first thing he's trying to get them to see this guy who wants Jesus to decide his inheritance. And you're thinking yourself, he probably is the one that's going to get the bigger chunk and he just wants Jesus to bless it. And Jesus refuses to get into it and opens up a much broader teaching here, okay? And so he goes on now. now here's, here's the parable that comes between these general statements. Um, uh, the land of a rich man. By the way, a parable, simply a story that Jesus composes. He's not reporting an actual event here. He is composing a story using earthly details, to teach us something about life in the kingdom of God okay so he tells this parable notice there is the guy already rich yes he says there the land of a rich man the guy's already rich uh, produced plentifully so the guy's already rich his land is just going you know he can't can't hardly bring it in fast enough there's so much there in terms of crops Here's his problem. He thought to himself, the guy thinks to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Okay? Notice how many times, I won't point out every time, but notice how many times it says I and my and mine through this section. Okay? So here's his problem. What's he going to do? He's got no place to store it. Now, what what might he do uh, if he were a child of God? What thought might go through his head? With respect to what he might do with all this extra stuff that he really doesn't need because he's already rich. He, he's being blessed so much that he, he can't even think where he's going to store it. What might go through his mind? Could I help Could I help someone else? Could I help the poor? Right? God even commanded in, his old, in the Old Testament that his people shouldn't even uh, harvest their crops right up to the end of their field, but leave it there for the poor and the needy. That thought doesn't even cross his mind. It's all self-focused because, again, he's thinking of himself and his value only through the accumulation of more possessions. Okay, so it's kind of interesting. We get get the uh, we get the thought process of the guy here. He says, and he said, verse eighteen, "I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods." So we hear his solution here. He's got his solution. Uh, Notice it's all me, mine. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So again, where is his source of security and peace and comfort? In his goods, yep. Interesting, in contrast to Ecclesiastes, he's not staying awake at night, is he? Uh, Worrying about these things, because he's got an abundance of them. So he's able to sleep uh, quite well, because he's secure. The only problem is... His security is in the wrong thing, right? And so, finally, but God said to him, fool. Now, a fool, uh, let me, I always try to make this distinction. There's a difference between being a fool and, and and being ignorant, okay? Ignorant means you just don't know something to be the case. If it, um... If I didn't look at the weather report for this morning and I came and I I, I went out the door in my winter parka, right? I would be ignorant because I just didn't know how warm it was or how hot it was. But if I got up and I looked at the weather and I still went out with my parka on, I would be a fool because I knew what was right in front of me and I did something that was foolish. Okay? So here's again the thing that... He calls him a fool because it is right in front of him, and he does not see it. He does not act in a way that is pleasing in the sight of God. And this night, it says, your soul, God says, your soul is required of you. In other words, it's demanded back from, me, uh, from you to me tonight. And there's a rhetorical question here. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You can hear the echo of Ecclesiastes, right? He's worked for all these things. Whose will they be? All that grain you got stored up in the barns and the the silos and that, whose will it be? So again, there's a clear connection with Ecclesiastes. And uh, so it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So being rich toward God... Uh, I guess we might translate as being concerned with the things of God and not being focused on the things of this world, which, again, are fleeting and empty. You can't take it with you. Somebody else gets it. Rather, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? As Jesus said, where moth can't destroy and thief can't break in and steal. Or I I think of another, uh, remember when Jesus said, what will it gain a man or what will it profit a man If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or loses his soul same kind of thing here okay so this is this is some pretty straightforward talk from Jesus here about the things of this world and the things of God and where is our focus and where is our uh, priority where is our value okay and so again this is a pretty clear connection between the Old Testament and the gospel all right let me stop here for a second Uh, Any comments or questions on this, on this gospel section? All right, let's close uh, then with the epistle. And uh, the epistle doesn't necessarily talk. I mean, you can make some connections, but it's not explicitly designed uh, to make connections with uh, either of the Old Testament or gospel lesson. We've been in a series now that's going through the epistle of Colossians. So you've probably noticed the last, uh, I think, at least two weeks, uh and, and today in church as well. Uh epistle readings from Colossians and next Sunday will be again. Especially during the summer, we uh the lectionary allows us to have continuous readings through some of the epistles. Uh Galatians is done this way, Romans is done this way in some of the other years as well. All right, now let's go on. Uh, Colossians chapter three, and we might say that this section talks about baptism as the basis for our life as Christians. Okay? And remember, the Colossian church, primarily Gentile Christians. Uh, They had not grown up with the Old Testament and the prophets. So a lot of this stuff that Paul is saying to them is brand new to them. Uh, They haven't been steeped in this. They're not predominantly Jewish. They're predominantly Gentile. So uh, let's just start with uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. I guess there is really kind of a good connection here. Let me start with this. It says there, if then you have been raised with Christ. And the inference is, you have been raised with Christ. In other words, he's not questioning it. He's saying, if this is the case, if then this ought to be true. So let me ask you this. When were we, and when were the Colossian Christians, ever raised with Christ? In baptism. Those of you that have not been to church yet read uh, or just listen read along uh, as the epistle lesson for today is read chapter 2 verse 12 talks about us in our baptism having been buried with christ and raised again with him we already have been raised to new life in and through our baptism we are already living that new life you almost hear echoes here of romans 6 where Paul again makes the statement in the first five verses of Romans 6, that in baptism we were buried with Christ and we have been raised again to new life. Okay? So we already, as Christians, it's, it's just a way of speaking that tells us that our baptism connects us uh, as close as can possibly be with Christ. Through baptism, his death is our death, his resurrection is our resurrection and we have already been raised to a wonderful new life as forgiven and washed clean children of God, okay? That's already been done for us. So, Paul is saying, uh, in effect here is, since you've already been this, now live the, the baptized life, okay? So seek the things that are above. Kind of echoes what we've been saying from the other two lessons, I guess, isn't it? Seek the things that are from above, not, you know, the things that are here. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God. Does God have a right hand and a left hand and a arms and legs and and so on? No. And this phrase, the right hand of God, is a a figure of speech. I guess you would say to signify that which is the most powerful and prominent place in all of creation or, or all of heaven. Um, we, we use that phrase today when we speak of the right-hand person, you know, the right-hand man of the president or the right-hand, you know, the CEO has a right-hand man or right-hand person. Same kind of thing. The position of great power and authority. That's where Christ is seated today. So seek the things that are there. Notice again, notice verse 2. Set your minds, you know, focus your minds on the things that are above. And that's a present tense imperative there, which means keep on setting your minds. It's an ongoing process. You have to keep setting your mind on the things that are above. Why do you have to keep setting your mind on the things that are above? What are the things of this earth going to constantly do? Beckon and call out to you to focus on them, right? And uh, to set your mind on them. So keep on setting your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And the, and the understanding is that can lead you away from the things that are above. Okay? Uh, verse uh, 3. For you have died. We said, whoa, when did we die? Baptism. Same, same thing, remember? In baptism we were buried with him. So you have died and your life is hidden with, God, with Christ in God. That phrase, your life is hidden, uh, uh, the hidden can also be translated, is stored away for safekeeping with Christ. It's a a beautiful way of thinking about it, really. Your life and what you will be is stored away uh, for for safekeeping with Christ. It's hidden with Christ in God. A beautiful way of thinking about it. When is that going to be no longer hidden? on the last day when christ returns right and we won't get into again raised up glorified bodies all of that that's all hidden right now and it's 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 in safe keeping with god in christ okay i'm sorry with christ in god verse four when christ who is our life appears this is what we're talking about then you also will appear with him in glory you know we don't we don't look like too much glory right now but on that day <laughs> we will appear with him in glory in glor- glorious bodies that are no longer impacted with all the all the effects of sin in this world okay so on that day it, it's hidden now it's stored away with, with in christ with god in safekeeping kind of sealed off and it's known to him but on that day when he appears you also will appear in glory okay now verse five now we can sort of again live as baptized children but it's going to be from a negative perspective put to death therefore what is earthly in you what do you get from that language put to death what is earthly in you in other words uh you have thought or have a desire what do you do with it kill it yeah <laughs> that's it's a good one yeah uh, hit the stop you know uh, and, and here comes a uh, laundry list here of things. Sexual immorality. If I say the Greek word for this word, and Paul uses it throughout the New Testament, you will know it is the word pornea. And we get the word pornography from it. Pornea is it's translated sexual Im, Im, um, immorality. Um, I'm going to try to say this. It is any uh, any sexual relation outside of marriage. That's literally how Paul uses it. Everybody understand what I'm saying? That means premarital, that means extramarital, porneia, sexual immorality. Okay. So don't he says put to death that impurity is just kind of uncleanness. It's not necessarily sexual in nature, but just uncleanness in general. Passion. Now, again, it's not wrong to have a passion for something, but it's understood you're a passion for evil or a passion for sin, evil desire, and and again, not not just sexual, but evil desire, wishing evil on someone else could fit this category as well. Um, and covetousness. There it is again, which is idolatry. Now, let me ask you, how does covetousness? How can covetousness and uh, the passionate desire to have what belongs to somebody else, how can that lead to idolatry? Yes, it can, it can actually take over in the place of God in your life. You make it a God. It's not a God, but you turn it into a God in your life, don't you? And, and so he says here, which is idolatry? Okay, verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Seven, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And again, remember, these are Gentile converts to the Christian faith. So yes, Paul can say, you were once walking this way yourself before, you, uh, before God brought you to faith. Um, uh, let's see, where did I... Oh, uh, verse uh, seven... Uh, I'm sorry, verse eight but now, you know, now that you're, now you're a Christian, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, and those are kind of synonyms, really. Malice, so, so ill will toward someone else. Slander, which would be, of course, speech that is harmful to our neighbor and his uh, reputation. And obscene talk, which would just cover all kinds of shameful uh, speech uh, coming from our mouth. Uh, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You almost get the idea here. It's kind of like a you, you kind of take off one garment and put on another garment. And, and a, a more correct way of saying that is God takes off our old garment right, in baptism and gives us a new garment, which is... The righteousness of Christ right that we are clothed in now so all Paul is doing here is saying uh, act like and behave like what you are you know uh, you're a baptized child of God act like it okay um, then going on uh, this new self that's put on now is being renewed in knowledge or made new in knowledge after the image of its Creator or after God the Creator then verse 11 is a great one to end up on uh here in other words in this christian faith there is neither greek nor jew now boy that is quite a statement right the 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 jews and the we say jew and gentile here and boy the the animosity that existed especially on the part of jews toward gentiles paul is saying in christ there's no more of that you know there's no more division there and then between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and again, the Jews would, would, would have argued against that, that you've got to follow the Old Testament law and be circumcised if you're going to be a child of God. Males, obviously. Okay? And now, he gets rid of the Jew-Gentile thing. Then he goes and says, barbarians and Scythians. And so he's even saying, class-wise, there's no difference. The barbarians were the ones that the Greeks looked down their nose at we still we still have that I think we still have that phrase right it 's just a barbarian you know and we say that in in uh, jest you know and, and and the Scythians were known as barbarians on steroids they were the least cultured, the least uh, polished and 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 so on and Paul is saying that there's There's not even any class distinctions anymore in Christ. So Jew-Gentile class distinctions are all done away with. Look at the next one, slave or free. Again, those class distinctions are completely abolished when it comes to Christ. He ends up here, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, all human measures of calculation, including culture, class, education, um, your, your pedigree. All that means nothing. It's just you're in Christ. And Christ is the great, great leveler, you might say, of all things. Okay? And so we as humans, I think, struggle with that at times. We like to keep our, our own uh, uh, qualifications and calculations, don't we, about people and size people up. And, and Paul says, not in the church. That, that You check that at the door. Okay? So that's a great positive way to end up. Christ is all and in all. All right? And conveniently, we're at the end of our time. I see on the clock on the wall. So let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.